Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wool on us. Painting and taking on all the plates and paint and troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get Uh, we are back this week with a new podcast. I know that over the past few weeks, we've actually been running other people's podcasts where I was a guest, but uh, we've got a bunch of excellent guests lined up over the next few weeks, starting with today's guest, Jamal Green, who, among a few other things, is a constitutional law professor at Columbia University Law School. And there are many things that we could talk to Professor Green about. Uh, he is a widely recognized expert in the concept of originalism and the Constitution, as well as free speech. Uh, he is also the coach of the Facebook Oversight Board, which we've obviously discussed a few times on the podcast already. Uh, on top of that, a few years ago, he was a senior visiting scholar at the Knight First Amendment Institute, where he commissioned a series of very interesting papers about free speech and new communications technologies. And that includes my own paper on protocols, not platforms, which he helped to edit and I think was kind of instrumental in forcing me to think through many of the different issues and to improve that paper quite a lot. So uh, we've obviously talked about that paper a lot on, on this podcast as well. And so uh, he is one of the main people to thank for having that paper come out the way uh, it did. Um, but we're not here to talk about that either. <laughs> Instead, we have him on the podcast today uh, because he recently came out with a fascinating and, and really thought-provoking new book called How Rights Went Wrong, uh, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart, uh, which I've been reading over the past few weeks. And it's uh, been making me think really deeply about a bunch of different issues, especially as someone who one could say has spent much of my adult life somewhat obsessed with certain specific rights. So the title alone, I think, got my guard up a little. Um, but in reading through it, it's it's a, been a, a really, uh, as I said, thought-provoking and makes really compelling arguments for why I might want to rethink some of my own obsession, uh, not to give up on rights, but to reconsider them within kind of a larger context, especially in how different rights clash and conflict with one another. Uh, so I'm thrilled to have him on the podcast today to talk about the book. Welcome. Thanks. So happy to be here. Cool. So let's start with the title of the book specifically. You know, as I noted, it kind of got my guard up a bit just because of, you know, I, I think I come from a group of people who are a bit obsessed with rights. But, you know, it also uh, and, and maybe it's because I know you a little bit, you know, it uh, and, and know how thoughtful you are. It made me sort of really want to dig in and understand your argument rather than assuming I knew exactly what you were saying by that title. So I'm curious if you did you choose that title on purpose sort of knowing that that some people like myself might react strongly to it? Or, you know, was there other thinking in coming up with the title? Well, you know, anytime you're picking a book title, and you want to sell it, you want to, you do want to catch people's attention. So sure. That's that certainly went into it. This is not the original title of the book. The original title of the book was uh, the rights epidemic, oh, and that's what I sold it as. And that was the title of the book until about March of 2020, um, <laughs> when there was a real epidemic. Uh, and uh, I didn't want to look like I was like 
you know, right. trying to profit off the off the pandemic or trivializing the pandemic. Um, so we so we changed it a bit and just played with a bunch of different uh, a bunch of different titles. And I I, I like the title. I, I don't you know I don't know if I love it, but I, I do like the title. <laughs> um, and it is meant to uh, to take something that I think we think of as a universal good and complicate it and say uh, and say in fact it can't be sort of good all the time for all of us. And that's kind of the kind of the, the thrust of the book is is that uh, taking rights seriously for one person uh, often means taking taking them not that seriously for others. Yeah. And, and so that I, I think that's a really good sort of quick summary of the book. Do you want to um, give sort of a broader frame for, for for, you know, how the book explores that uh, for, for our listeners? Sure. The, the, the book is, I think, at bottom about the the conflict between rights and pluralism <clears throat> is we live in this pluralistic society. We all have different interests and values and commitments. Some of those things we refer to as rights. Others, maybe we call them interests or something else. <clears throat> but the, the problem comes in where you have a legal decision maker, uh, or one of the problems comes in when you have a legal decision maker who has to, to, to reconcile our rights in some way. Uh, and when you live in a genuinely cosmopolitan, genuinely pluralistic society, a rights conflict, whether it's in uh, about free speech or about affirmative action or about abortion or about guns or any number of other topics, the 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 conflict is not is the character of the conflict is not sort of you know there's a there's a an oppressive sort of pathological abusive uh, uh, government actor. On one side, and you know the the the, the rebel the rebel alliance uh, from Star Wars <laughs> is on the other side, uh, and and the judge just had to figure out you know which side is which. Right. That that's not you know that may have been the character of certain kinds of rights con maybe you know that's McCarthyism or that's uh, mm -hmm. Jim Jim Crow. But but most of the things we disagree about don't take that care don't have that character. Most of the things we disagree about, there are reasonable good faith arguments often sounding in rights on both sides of the conflict. And so the way you approach that kind of conflict isn't to say one side is right about rights and the other side is wrong, or one side is abusive and the other side is valiant. But the way you resolve that has to be uh, more of a mediation or reconciliation that takes seriously the claims on both sides. And it's a different kind of language of thinking about rights that courts, I think, don't do enough of. They do. They, they often do this in other countries, and we can get into that a little bit. But uh, don't do enough of in the U.S. And I think it also affects the rest of the population as well. Yeah, I mean, definitely part of the argument that you make in the book that that I thought was really interesting is this idea that that this extreme focus on on certain you know a small group of absolute rights is kind of leading to the culture war. Uh, aspect of American politics and culture that we we see today, though you know part of the thing that I was wondering as I was reading it is you know is there sort of a chicken and egg part of this is it is it that this obsession with rights resulted in this or did it go the other way that the the sort of culture war led to putting so much weight on these cases that that sort of pushed them to these extremes so do you have, you know, have you thought about that? Like, which way does this go, or does it, or does it flow in both directions to some extent? Well, I, I do think it flows in in both directions, uh, and I, I'll 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 qualify the statement a little bit, in that I don't think that 
I don't think our culture wars are because of the way we think about rights. Uh, I, I think that I do think the way we think about rights contributes to mm. polarization and contributes to the culture wars. And I, I do. I also think that that legal decision makers and judges in particular have a role to play in trying to make uh, to make those wars uh, better. Uh, and they're mm -hmm. and they're leaving a lot of money on the table, and so that's the posture that I would that I would suggest is it's not that, you know, it's not that if you you read and listen to the book like suddenly it's going to be kind of kumbaya, and <laughs> uh, we're all going to agree with each other. It's it, that's not the idea. The idea is that there are there are modes of 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 discourse uh, and and also substantive decisions that courts can make that can actually lower the temperature of conflicts rather than raising it. And I'll give you, I'll just give you an example. Sure. Uh, so Citizens United, I'll, I'll use a speech example. Uh, this is a case where a corporate, you know, corporation wants to run a movie about Hillary Clinton. That's really just a hit piece, right? They, they, they want to, they want right. to sink her, you know, right before the 2008 presidential election where she's running for president. Uh, and they run afoul of the campaign finance laws that say a corporation can't use its general treasury funds to fund electioneering in the in the run up the you know the 30 days before an election or 60 days before a primary and supreme court ends up getting this case and says well th this is a the, the question is does citizens united have 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 free speech rights uh, and of course they do uh, the court says and uh, and and so if they have free speech rights if this is a free speech issue then in, in legal terms, we'd say strict scrutiny applies, right? This is the, the mm -hmm. high, the, the lowest level of deference, the most, the most severe form of scrutiny that we give. And, uh, and here, uh, the, the, the other side of this is, is some claim about political equality, and it's not for the government to decide who's equal and who isn't. And so Citizens United has to win. And they announce a rule that kind of applies like to everyone, to every corporation, like, like any corporation can spend unlimited sums on elections um, up to the day of the election or after or before, no uh, moderation at all. So if you frame the case in that way, it, so that you have free speech on one side and the court spends a lot of time talking about political speech and how important mm -hmm. political speech is. And on the other side is, a, is, the, is the, a principle of political equality, where do citizens have, have the ability to access uh, electioneering on equal terms to corporations. You know, if you ask me, a, a liberal, you know, which of those do you, you're going to line up with corporate speech rights or you're going to line up with political equality, I'm going to say political equality, right? And if you ask a conservative, they'll say, no, political speech is really important. We don't really trust the government on, on matters of political. So we, if, if that's the way you frame Citizens United, we're going to reliably line up on one side or the other. And that's how the court frames it. Mm -hmm. The alternative is to is to dig much deeper into the into what makes this case interesting, which is that Citizens United is not General Motors. They're an ideological corporation. So they right. they are trying to to promote a political message. They're not they're not just using their the receipts from their car sales to 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 fund uh, um, advocacy. Citizens United is a closely held corporation. They're not traded in a public stock exchange. Uh, Citizens United. Uh, is a running a video on demand film. It's not a, not a, not a TV ad, which is what the campaign finance laws are most concerned with because that you're at least back then you were a captive audience before a TV ad. Right. But, uh, but video on demand, you actually have to pay for it and ask for the movie in mm -hmm. order to, in order to, to view it. Uh, 
the question in Citizens United wasn't really about just speech in general. It was about how you fund your speech, right? So Citizens United could put out the same exact movie if they use a separate political action committee instead of using the general treasury funds, right? So these are all kind of interesting contextual differences that should matter to the justice of what is happening in this case, right? Uh, we, we, sh we should be asking questions about what kind of corporation is this? What do they actually want to put out? You know, is it video on demand? How burdensome is it for them to set up a, a separate political action committee? None of those questions are asked in the case. Mm -hmm. When if you would ask those questions, the conservative and me can get a little bit closer to agreeing on something. <laughs> Right. If you, you know, like, you know, if you're going to if you're if it's all if it's all the level of sort of are you into liberty or equality, like we're going to we're going to we disagree about those things if we have different value systems. Right. But when it comes down to, well, we we both care about both of those things at some level. Can we make some progress? And I can imagine a decision in Citizens United that says, look, we're going to say that a, a corporation like Citizens United, that's ideological, closely held, putting out a, an, an advocacy film on the eve of an election, like that actually does fall into important political speech interests, assuming it is burdensome for them to use a separate political action committee, right? So those are factual questions and and much more narrow questions. It's The book's about trying to answer rights questions, I, I like to say at retail rather than at wholesale, <laughs> right? It's, it's you're, you know, you're asking the little questions and not the big ones. And that's how you, you know, that's how you get along. Yeah. And, 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 and so part of it, part of the, the, the framing, correct me if this is not right, but um, it is that, that when, when we focus on these sort of, you know, a few big rights, we sort of wipe out the discussion of, of all these other rights and, and, you know, interests in rights that, that are implicated by the, the sort of bigger question of, of these you know, few rights. Is, is that a fair assessment of it? Yeah, well, we, we we have a tendency in the U.S. to think of rights as being basically absolute. And I think that mm -hmm. that, at least presumptively absolute, you need a really good reason if you're going to overcome a right, because rights right. are important. And that's part of the legacy of the civil rights movement, I think, is that is uh, is that if you think about rights as the government is abusive and oppressive, well, then rights are really important and you have to you have to, to treat them very strongly. But if you treat rights as as almost absolute, you can't protect that many of them. Like that's mm. just a just a natural trade-off because they're going to come into conflict with each other. Right. And you can't simultaneously protect you know two absolute rights. So you end up having to choose. Uh, and what I call rightsism in the book is you're discriminating between rights and deciding which ones are super important, and the other ones can't be that important because otherwise you have a conf you have a problem <laughs> um, if you're right. going to treat them all basically absolute. And what I try to suggest in the book is rather than take only a small number of rights and, and think of them really strongly, we should actually protect more rights, uh, but understand that they have inherent limits and try to spend more time thinking about what those limits are rather than spending our time thinking about which rights are worth protecting and which rights aren't worth protecting. Going back to my my very strongly held view that that you know, we disagree about rights for the most part because we're different from each other. Um, mm -hmm. not, bec not because one of us, you know, some of us are angels and others of us are demons. It's because we are different human beings and we live in a, in a pluralistic society. Yeah. I, I mean, you have a line in the book that I really liked, which is that the U.S. court 
recognizes relatively few rights but strongly, and they should recognize more rights but weakly, right? That's the the sort of summary of of what you just said, um, and and it like it's it the whole thing is it's it's very interesting, and it uh, you know as I said, I've been thinking a lot about it, um, and in some sense, you know, it's it's funny this idea that you have in there of sort of you know having the courts need to reconcile rights. You know, it, it reminds me a little bit of some of the content moderation debates, which I know you're aware of from from your role with the Facebook Oversight Board or just the Oversight Board. I should remove the Facebook. <laughs> People get upset with me when I call it the Facebook Oversight Board. But, but you know, the, the Oversight Board that Facebook created. Uh, but it, it feels like there are some similar issues because, you know, when it comes to like to to content moderation questions, you often run into the same thing where you know, there are a lot of people who assume that there's like some, you know, obvious correct answer. And and the reality often is that all choices are kind of bad and you're sort of trying to figure out what is the least bad choice. Right. Uh, and so are, are you sort of arguing for the same kind of thing that, that you know, when we just focus on, on a purely, you know, extreme rights-based uh, view that you're leading to this this same sort of situation where people get really worked up about those rights and don't realize like, you know, there is some sort of middle ground solution that, you know, it's not going to be perfect and people are going to be upset, but it's there's there are, are less bad choices than just going to one extreme. Is that is that so where I, you're I, going? I think that's basically fair. You know, what the, what I what I what I'll resist a little bit is the notion that you know, what you're doing is sort of picking the middle, you know, you're sort of mm -hmm. figuring out what the middle is. Sure, sure. Um, which is a which is a little bit different from, you know, I, you can you can give me a situation and say, you know, here's a, you know, here's you know, the first the first side, part, party A is is at 10 and party B is at minus 10. So let's pick zero. <laughs> right. Um, but and that's not quite what I mean. Right. What right. I mean is that is that is that decisions by adjudicators in particular, but legal decision makers of all kinds, people who are, who are trying to resolve rights disputes, have to take seriously the claims made by both sides mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and, and have a, an honest assessment. And it's gonna be a judgment call and we're gonna disagree about it, but an honest asses assessment of what are the burdens involved here is this like a really burdensome thing, or is this less burdensome? Um, uh, is the is you know you're someone claiming free speech uh, violation? Are they claiming a free speech violation because they got a post taken down, or are they mm -hmm. claiming a free speech violation because someone's putting them in prison? Uh, you know, those are yeah, those are both free speech, but that's not right. You know, like that's not the in, the interesting comparison right, between them, right? right? Um, uh, and so and so and so that might mean that. Conflicts don't are not resolved by you know splitting down the middle, but it's a it's a question of what kinds of information do you think are imp is important when you're making a decision about rights conflicts? Is it the mm -hmm. bare fact that someone has claimed a right? It surely can't be that, right? It's got to be what are the facts here? What are the alternatives? Are there ways of of getting to of respecting the 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 interests, values, and commitments of both sides? Um, uh, without doing, without causing this particular conflict, right? 
those are the kinds of questions we should be asking when we confront right. rights conflicts. It doesn't make the conflict go away, but it, it at least brings us into a, a productive conversation, whereas a, a conversation about, again, whether whether liberty is better than equality is not a productive conversation. Right, right. Yeah, and, and, and I'm going to go back to the content moderation sure. discussion just because I, I spend so much time thinking about this. So so I'm like, you know, it becomes this mirror or prism, I guess, through which I see everything. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, for a while I've I've been arguing that you know, that that the different uh, you know, websites and platforms sort of need flexibility to to be able to to understand stuff and to take into account all different kinds of context. Um because you know, part of my argument is that, you know, every sort of big moderation challenge often involves a lot of context that is not necessarily always obvious to, you know, people who are complaining about the moderation decision in, in either way, leave up, take down, whatever. Um, and and so I've always argued strongly for that, for the flexibility and recognizing context and, and recognizing that no two examples are ever as identical as people often make them out to be. Um, but it's occurring to me as we talk that I've, so I argue that for content moderation, but I've argued very differently when it comes to the courts in determining things, where I tend to, you know, probably fall into this view of like, well, that's clearly, uh, you know, a First Amendment violation or something along those lines. Um, and I have shown a lot less willingness to, to explore the context of things in in that uh, scenario. And there's a, there's a part of me that wants to say that's okay because it's different. And when you're talking about sort of you know state intervention through the courts and, and the laws, that you need to have that that difference. But there's a part of me that's that's now asking why? Why do I feel that way when right. I when I feel one way about it? within the sort of, you know, private platform context, um, should I feel differently about it when it comes to the court context? So so an, another way of asking what I, you know, a version of what you're suggesting, right, mm -hmm. is, is, you know, when you when you talk about a platform moderating uh, content on the platform, is is what's most interesting about what's happening, the fact that it's, whether it's a public or a private entity, or is the most interesting thing about what's happening, whether it's a platform or something mm. else, right? So a thought experiment that I'm still struggling with myself, um, uh, and is certainly relevant to the work that I do with the oversight board, is, you know, we we're, we often reflexively say that you know Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or whoever uh, can do what they're doing because they're private, right? right? And, and that if the government were doing this, well, of course the government can't discriminate on the basis of you know, can't you know, clear hate speech off the platform clear or, or, or clear nudity or whatever off the platform. Right. Right. But I'm not so sure about that um, because, you know, most of what the government does is not anything like that. You know, us the, the usual context in which we're complaining about government speech is not the government has set up a, 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 a plat has put up a, a platform into the marketplace and has said, we're going to invite you to contribute to this. Here are some rules. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right to what you can do and can't do. You know, would you really say if the government were to set up its own social media platform, and and you know didn't exclude people um, wholesale, was just basically competing with other platforms, and the government said, you know, the rule is no porn. <laughs> right? Would you really say the government can't do that? Um, 
you know, I'm not so sure. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, uh, and, and it's because it's a platform, right? It's it's right. It's a. It's at scale, and b. It, it it serves a certain function that is very different than the function of, say, law enforcement, where if someone right. if you, you break down someone's door and throw them in jail for what you know for 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 porn, that's very different than saying, look, we want to. This is a family platform, okay? Yeah. No, I mean, I I could see people who would argue that that they could not do that no no i um, I, I think i think i think that i know some of those people yeah i, I was gonna say some of them may have been your former colleagues at the, at the first amendment institute uh um you know but um yeah no it's an interesting question and actually it's making me think and i haven't thought this that deeply about it it's like you know in in situations where the government has set up you know for, you know for the most part they haven't set up like social media but there have been things like you know like the the white house petition set up i forget what it's called um where you know you could argue that is a, a form of a of a kind of social media thing where people can set up a petition and have people vote on it. And, and in theory, the, the executive branch is supposed to respond to it. Um, and I haven't really thought about, are there first amendment questions related to that? Um, well, there, there and, are you know, in first amendment law, there's, you know, there is a doc, there is a, what's called a public forum doctrine. Um, uh, and, and there, you know, there are, there are some rules around, what kinds right. of speech restrictions apply based on what the purpose of the forum is. What, what I think would be different in the hypothetical I gave is that, you know, if the purpose of the forum is free speech, right. you know, public forum doctrine would generally say, you know, you can't make certain kinds of distinctions, but I'm, I'm still, I'm still wrestling with that a little bit because I'm, I'm not sure that, that we, that, that, that we can't, you know, that if you, you know, if you, if you set up right. a, a forum and said, you know, we, we, you can't, you know, you can speak freely, but don't use racial epithets. Right. Um, that would violate the First Amendment if, uh, if certainly if we're talking about criminal punishment or, or regulation of that sort, would it violate the First Amendment if you said that in a, I don't know. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's interesting. Um, it, it, to, there, there's a lot. I, I'm realizing I could go in a whole bunch of different directions. <laughs> the question, but, but to bring it to bring it back um, a little bit towards the book specifically, um, you know, um, do you? I have another sort of the chicken and egg kind of questions. I mean, do you think that the focus on rights so directly is is what makes America so litigious or is it that you know the the sort of litigious nature of of america created this where we sort of you know backstop all of these fights on on rights on a rights focus well if you if you listen to tocqueville we've always been litigious <laughs> we've <Yeah>. never stopped <laughs> we never stopped being uh being litigious um and and you know i i'm not enough of a of a kind of cultural anthropologist or a sociologist to figure out why uh, we're so, why we are so, so litigious. You know, I, uh, I, I was always attracted to, uh, to Albert Hirschman's uh, exit voice and loyalty, right. That we, mm -hmm. that something about the frontier mentality um, uh, makes us not recognize the need for, um, for, 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 
uh, pluralistic communities, right? That if you disagree with someone, like you get out of town um, <laughs> right. here, whereas in Europe, like everyone's just kind of thrown in together and they don't have a choice. Right. Uh, and, and we, we, so there's a crude story that you could tell where we've we created a certain set of structures that are designed for a society in which exit is, is, is freely given, but, but now we, we don't live in that society anymore. <laughs> and so we're, so we're all sort of thrown together, but we sort of still think in these very individualistic terms. I think there might be something, uh, something to that, uh, but I, but I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna, gonna, gonna go full, full law professor and, and claim <laughs> that I, that I, that I, that I can say um, with certainty that that's the story uh, about litigiousness. Uh, I, you know, I do think that, uh, you know, we've had, we've had. Um, judicial review for a long time. Sure. Uh, and you know, that's got to be part of the story is most of the world doesn't develop um, any, any, anything we'd recognize as judicial review until after World War II. Uh, and the kinds of problems that judicial review is responding to in the post-war era uh, look really different from the kinds of problems judicial review was responding to in, in, in 1803 when Marbury versus Madison is decided. Uh, and we've had a, we also have a lot of baggage from the Civil War, from Reconstruction, from the Progressive Era, where we're making what courts view as a lot of mistakes in judicial review when it comes to recognizing certain commercial rights and rights to contract. And we backtrack mm -hmm. from that and say, you know, the worst sin you can imagine is to recognize a right to contract. Um, but the the second worst sin is to is to not recognize a right against racial discrimination, right? So <laughs> right. you've got these, you know, we, so we, we've, because of our particular baggage and our particular history, we've gotten to a place where we think that judges are being activist if mm -hmm. they recognize lots of rights, but weakly. Um, but we don't think they're being activists if they recognize certain rights strongly. Uh, and, uh, and that choice between which rights you recognize weakly and which rights you recognize strongly is I think not a very easy choice to make. And it doesn't really lend itself to this kind of Manichaean black and white framework that we tend to apply to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's a really interesting part of the book also. Um, and, and you sort of, you know, certainly delve into that quite a bit. I mean, you talk about you know, and, and sort of what you're referring to, to some extent, right, is like the the Lochner error of of the Supreme Court and 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 court rulings, I guess. Um, do you want to discuss that a little? Because I actually think that's that is really interesting framing as background that that a lot of people, especially a lot of our listeners, might not know about. Yeah. So this is um, this is one of these cases that's sort of super famous among lawyers. But kind of not at all famous um, outside <laughs> of of law. You know, every lawyer knows, every American lawyer knows knows the Lochner case, because the Lochner case gets stood up as a prime example of judicial activism, and we have a lot of anxiety about judicial activism in the U.S. for lots of reasons. You know, judges, um, we we have a certain conception of democracy. Judges are unelected and judicial review is not written into the constitution specifically. Right. Um, and, and so we have a lot of anxiety about judges being activists. We want to give judges. Some... And, and uh, uh, just to, to sure, interrupt sure. very, very quickly, uh, in, in case our, our listeners don't know, judicial review is basically just that, that the, the courts can review whether or not the laws are, are constitutional or not. Right. Is that the, That's the right. simplest way? Of putting... That's right. Okay. Just want to make sure. 
so there's this case in 1905 uh, called Lochner versus New York, where the Supreme Court has to decide whether to uphold a law that sets a maximum hours, a number of hours for bakers in, in New York State. So 10 hours a day, 60 hours a week. If you work longer than that, it's a criminal offense in New York. And this is set up ostensibly for health and safety reasons. Baking is apparently a dangerous profession and people get really tired and and so forth. But the court strikes it down in a five to four decision in which they say that this violates the bakers and the bakery owner's right to contract. Uh, now the right to contract is not written into the constitution specifically. And uh, Lochner ends up defining uh, about a 30 to 40 year period in the first half of the 20th century in which courts are fairly routinely invalidating wage and hours laws and um, and health and safety measures and collective bargaining laws and um, all sorts of kind of capital P progressive legislation. Uh, and f from, the, from the perspective of history, um, uh, this is looked back on as judges kind of not staying in their lane. Uh, because mm -hmm. when the depression comes, those kinds of laws uh, are viewed as being really helpful in helping to pull the nation out of depression. And Roosevelt's a very popular president. He ends up um, picking eight Supreme Court justices uh, and, uh, and, and transforming the way the court thinks about these kinds of progressive era legislation. And for entirely contingent reasons, we look back on Lochner and, and judges today look back on Lochner as the epitome of activist, you know, activist judging. The problem is we don't all agree on what was wrong with Lochner. Right? So if you, <laughs> if you ask a typical progressive lawyer, they'll say the problem with Lochner is, uh, uh, is the, the, these, there was these laissez-faire judges, right? Who didn't, who just didn't believe in labor legislation, didn't believe in health and safety regulation. They're protecting the big wigs and the corporations, uh, and they read in rights to the constitution in, in order to protect certain corporate interests. And uh, the problem for the progressive is not that you can never read rights into the constitution. See Roe versus Wade. Right. Right. The problem from a for the progressive is you shouldn't read these rights into the constitution. <laughs> right. For, but from a conservative perspective, at least for most of the 20th century, the problem with Lochner was uh, was unenumerated rights, right? Mm -hmm. So, so that you, you, the Constitution, you know, this is the originalist movement, right? The Constitution protects what is written in the text, and that's that. Um, now, we could get into the, into the all the problems with that view also, um, right. which is that it's just not consistent with with how we think about constitutional law in general, right? right. But 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 those are two very different criticisms, right? One is, um, you know, never read rights into the Constitution. What the other is. We'll read some rights, um, <laughs> uh, and what what ends up what what ends up developing out of Lochner is a, for again entirely contingent reasons. There are two dissenting opinions in the case. One is by Justice Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes, very famous uh, American judge from from Boston, and he says he basically takes the the kind of position of this is just reading things into the Constitution that aren't there. Mm -hmm. Justice Harlan, John Marshall Harlan, who's also a well-known judge, uh, uh, very famous for dissenting in Plessy versus Ferguson. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a separate but equal um, yep. case. He's the only dissenter in that case. 
Uh, he says, well, no, no, no. The problem is not that you read in a right to contract. Sure, there might be a right to contract in some circumstances. The problem is that there are, there's perfectly good, perfectly good reason for the government to regulate here. And he brings out a bunch of statistics about the dangers of baking and tuberculosis epidemics and like the Black Plague from in Marseille in the 17th century. And says, you know, like, there are like lots of good reasons why you might pass a law like this. And you give some deference to the legislature when it's pursuing legitimate objectives. The book wants to say, look, we 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 should we should be um, we should be focusing much more on Harlan, and much less on Holmes. Uh, that Holmes had a very simplistic understanding, or at least that the, the using his Lochner descent as you know the as the guide the gu our guidance for for thinking about rights is too simplistic. Mm -hmm. uh, that in in the modern world, once you get to the 1960s and 70s, you can't say. Uh, you can't just construct a universe in which there is some set of rights that are that are quote unquote in the constitution, and some set of rights that are quote unquote not in the constitution. When what you're talking about is, you know, criminal procedure, you know, Miranda warnings, um, uh, the right, the whether that does the government have to um, disclose exculpatory evidence to a criminal defendant, or birth control laws, uh, burning draft card. Uh, someone burning their draft card, making a free speech challenge, right? Free speech in a school. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, people who are ch who are challenging the due process they get when they're kicked off of a government welfare program, right? There's just a there's just a, a affirmative action, abortion, right? There's just a the, the those these are all cases in which you can't say there are no important rights at issue, <laughs> but you also can't say that there's no important governmental interest at issue, or there's nothing that there's nothing at stake on the other side in, in the way you could say that possibly about a segregation law, right? Once mm -hmm. you get into much more complicated rights disputes, you can't solve them. I'll go back to my phrase. You can't solve them at wholesale, right? You've got to solve them in detail. <laughs> and, and I mean, to some extent, right, um, you know, courts try to um, like resist going to like a, a to some extent, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it feels like courts try to avoid, um, you know, ruling on constitutional issues unless they've exhausted other um, other ways to rule, right? I mean, it, it feels like, you know, in, in my sort of, you know, journalistic reading of, of the various court rulings that I come across, you know, the, the courts seem to try to, to avoid that if they can, if there's like an easier way out of a case, basically, um, that that doesn't get to the specific constitutional rights issues, they will. So is that, I mean, is that a version of, of what you want or uh, or am I missing something there? So here's how I would say it. And I, I think there is, a, there is a basic mythology that courts um, engage in what they call constitutional avoidance, right? They uh -huh. they don't resolve constitutional questions unless they really have to. I don't think that the U.S. Supreme Court actually engages in constitutional avoidance. Sure. Um, but there there are any number of instances in which they decide much more than they need to decide, and I do think mm -hmm. that's part of the problem. What I would say is I want to reimagine what it means to to make a to make a constitutional holding, right? Mm -hmm. So. So it's not that you should never, you know, you should only address constitutional issues as a last resort. I think the Constitution, I think when you're in a constitutional case, you know, a, a lot of the work of the case is uh, is is figuring out um, how to reconcile 
uh, competing rights positions. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not it's not declaratory. It's not about declaring rights. Right? We have this sort of you know the court is this kind of heroic figure that goes around saying what our rights are. And I I think that that's a really um, destructive way of thinking about what courts do. Mm -hmm. I think that we declare what our rights are. And the mm -hmm. Constitution does too, but the Constitution talks about our rights in very broad terms. And, you know, our rights are the things that are super important to us. Uh, and it's not for courts to say who has rights and who, it, who doesn't. It's for courts to say, within our traditions, how do we mediate between these things? Within our tradition, you know, what are the facts here? What are mm -hmm. the what is the what is the evidence the government's relying upon here? Well, what's the, what's the evidence of a burden on the person who's asserting a burden? Um, can we make an assessment about that? How do we compare that to other burdens we've seen in the past? I think those are still constitutional decisions, mm -hmm. um, but they're constitutional decisions uh, down the line, right? They're they're a down the decisional, you know, some ways down the decisional line, the, the decision tree. You know, making the making judgments um, about the twigs of the decision tree, as opposed to chopping down the trees, um, is mm -hmm. is is the way I would phrase it. Interesting. I mean, so I, I try and sort of think through this a lot in in the in the First Amendment context because that's the the um, you know free speech issue is the one that I'm most familiar with and most deeply engaged with. Um, and, you know, some of this argument reminds me a bit of, you know, it's it's pretty common for, um, you know, non-First Amendment experts to assume that there's this sort of there is a kind of balancing test whenever it comes to, to free speech issues. And it's, you know, pretty common to to. Uh, confusingly <laughs> miscite uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes again <laughs> and, right. and point to the Shank case and say, you know, uh, uh, yelling fire in a crowded theater uh, is not protected. And therefore, this speech that I dislike in front of me also might not be protected. And and to believe that there's some sort of, you know, balancing that, that the courts could do. Um, and, you know, lots of free speech, First Amendment, lawyers will point out that's not how it works um, for a whole variety of reasons that we don't necessarily need to get into here. But but is part of your argument that we should be moving more towards that, more towards, a, a, you know, and, and again, like balancing is not the right um, issue either, but, you know, a, a more, um, you know, taking a more holistic view of these things, in, including free speech rights. Yes, for, for, for sure. And what I'd say about the Holmes example, and I agree that that it, that balance, pervasive balancing is not what we do in First Amendment law. But what what I think we do do is decide whether something is in a category of protected speech <laughs> or not. Right. And if it is, then you know, generally speaking, and there's some First Amendment free speech law is, is quite complicated, right? So yeah. I don't want to oversimplify. But but generally speaking, the kinds of things the government can do to protect its speech. Is is quite limited, mm -hmm. um, and when we when we want the government to be able to do more, we say it's just not protected speech at all, right. right? And the government can kind of do whatever it wants, and that that kind of binary where it's either it's protected speech or or it isn't, 
that puts a lot of pressure on the the, the, the question of are we talking about speech or not? Right. And if because if we are, then you know maximum protection. If we're not, no protection. Right. Right. Uh, and so that that then you know that that's a lot of our debates about freedom of of, of speech speech. You know, if you characterize the 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 debate in those terms, you know, the person who wants to regulate is kind of flat-footed, right? If you say, if you have to say that, you know, commercial speech is never protected, well, that that shouldn't that doesn't sound right to me. Right. You know, I'm I'm you know I'm not I'm not a super strict First Amendment person, right? But um, but that doesn't sound right right to me. But it also doesn't sound right to me to say that it's exactly the same thing as political speech, right? right? And that that so that that should be a factor. One of the examples I use in the book is uh, is campus speech, and I use this uh -huh. example of you know, Richard Spencer, who's this white nationalist, mm -hmm. um, who his Booker, who's not a um, not uh, it, uh, rents out the auditorium at Auburn University, uh, which is a public school, and his Booker doesn't go to the school; um, he actually mm -hmm. is is coming from somewhere else. Uh, but he rents out the auditorium at, for Richard Spencer, and then the school gets um, says, "Okay, this is fine." Then the students get wind of it, and they're like, "No thanks." Um, right. uh, and then the school backs out uh, and says, "Well, actually, we don't want this white supremacist to to speak on our on our on our campus." Um, the Booker sues on Spencer's behalf and wins um, his right. case, and the the judge says, "You know, it's a public university. You're discriminating on the basis of content and viewpoint of the speech. Like if this were." If this were like a radical egalitarian and, and like a bunch of racists showed up and said, you know, don't let them on campus, right? Auburn would have said, you know, uh, no, <laughs> we're going right. to let the egalitarian speak. We don't listen to racists. Uh, and, and so that's viewpoint discrimination. You're, you know, you're discriminating. Between, and so the court says, you know, you've got to let them on campus. And to me, this is a very good example of the way in which we just kind of flatten everything into questions of is this speech or not? Like, mm -hmm. is Richard Spencer's speech protected speech? Yeah, it is um, in the United States. It might not be in some other countries, but it is. That doesn't answer the question. <laughs> and it sh it <laughs> right. shouldn't answer the question of whether a university has to have this guy on their campus, right? Like, right. universities are, have their own academic freedom. They have their own students um, uh, whose sensibilities they rightly um, are tasked with protecting. Um, they curate speech all the time. They discriminate on speech all the time in faculty hiring decisions, mm -hmm. in admissions decisions. Like, would we say that if a school is choosing between two candidates for admission and one of them is a white supremacist and one of them is an egalitarian, that they have they have to be indifferent to that fact? Right. Like, I mean, that can't be right. Right. And so there are some contexts where we see that as obvious, but for some reason, um, we we lose ourselves. Huh. Uh, and and this is important, right? Because universities are like a really important um, public institution um, and, and yeah. institution of civil society. And part of what they do is to decide how to teach their, their students citizenship. Right. And that might, right. that might sometimes mean saying, no, you've got to go listen to something that you don't like, but that might also mean, well, well, no, we're not, that's not, it's not anything goes, <laughs> right, right? right. It's not, right. it's not just like a free for all, some kind of first amendment circus, right? It's no, it's, um, they make they they have discretion and that discretion is relevant to their role. So it's not to say like exactly how this case should have come out, although I have my, my ideas about how it should come out. It's yeah. to say, you know, the right kinds of questions to ask are what are the interests served by what the university is trying to accomplish? Uh, and sometimes those interests, and I think that's the case with Auburn, 
um, sometimes those interests have their own constitutional weight and their own constitutional value. Um, in, in this case, academic freedom. Right. Yeah. No, it, it, it's interesting. So, so one one other question that that came up to me that sort of came to me as I was reading the book and and trying to think through is, you know, um, in and and I know that you you talk about sort of how basically the rest of the the world uses more of a system like what you're advocating for. But, you know, one of the nice things uh, to me, at least about some of this is that when you have the the U S court system, judicial system working the way it does, um, you do have pretty clear standards and precedents, which, which allow people to sort of act with confidence in, in knowing that, they can do this or or cannot do that. Um, whereas I wonder if you move to to a world that is is more, you know, looking deeply into the context of each one, does that does that give people less, you know, clear boundaries in terms of what activity is allowed and what is not? Maybe it does, and I mm -hmm. I think that the the what I urge and that this is the 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 language used in legal circles around what I'm suggesting is proportionality, which mm -hmm. is a, which is a, a term of art in, in law. Uh, but it basically refers to, it's a kind of structured balancing where you, where you, uh, the questions you focus on are a lot of these contextual questions about justification and about mm -hmm. burden, as opposed to, um, a more categorical approach that we use in the U.S., which is we decide whether something fits into a, a rights category or not. Um, right. And and I think that I think it's a legitimate um, criticism that that at its best proportionality or what I'm urging leads to significant uncertainty in the law. Now, what I what I'd say is a couple of things. Like one is some uncertainty. I think is fine. Um, and I, I don't think that certainty is the um, is kind of the the master value um, sure. of all legal regimes, especially especially regimes around constitution constitutional law and constitutional rights, because part of the function of the constitution is to be a constitution for all of us, which mm -hmm. requires us to have some investment and some buy-in in the constitution, which means we've got to we've got to have some sense that if the facts change, we might win, <clears throat> right? Some, mm -hmm. some sense that the constitution cares about us and the only way it can care about everyone's rights is to not treat rights in this kind of absolute categorical sense, right? So, um, so some uncertainty in the law uh, is I think actually quite important in uh, when, when it comes to constitutional rights, there's gotta be play in the joints because that's, that's and, and that's what politics does, or politics is about navigating that play in the joints and we all have, we all need some leverage in participating in that in that negotiation in that navigation but the other thing i'd say is just you know like the the country that's closest in the way in which it resolves disputes and i'm not talking about the outcomes because different countries and different judges can come out with different outcomes uh but in terms of the style uh, the way you you approach these questions is canada mm -hmm. right in canada you know, if I got in my car and I drove six hours north of where I am right now, I'd be in Canada. Right? Right. It's not this sort of exotic um, uh, place. Uh, and they have a Supreme Court. 
and they have lots of lower courts, and those lower courts also decide constitutional cases. And I don't see any evidence that there is some kind of, you know, mass chaos or anarchy in their legal system, mm -hmm. or that people can't understand what they're able to do and what they aren't able to do. You know, you write opinions, you say what it's a, you say what's important and what isn't important, and people adjust to that. Right. right. So, so you, you know, you can you can generate certainty by saying the thing that's important is the fact that a right right is at stake. Right. Or you can generate certainty by saying the thing that's important is that something important is at stake. Right. And you develop a common law around that that isn't based on labels, um, but is based on um, on on evidence um, and is based on um, some some level of deference to the government in some circumstances, but not in others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, as I said, the, the, the book is really fascinating. I could talk to you for a really long time about this, but, but I'm not sure how much longer people want to listen. <laughs> um, it, it, there's, there's so many interesting things and, and, and it's really made me rethink a bunch of stuff and, and I'm not sure where I come down on it. There's, there's st certainly plenty of stuff in there that, that I find really compelling and, and, um, and definitely is making me reconsider stuff. There's some stuff I'm uncomfortable with, which, which I'm still sort of sitting with and trying to, to understand and see, see where I feel about, it. but, but, um, it's, it's a, it's a great read. It's, you know, it's, it's really well written obviously. And, and, um, and really thought provoking. I've, I've just been sort of sitting with it in my mind. So I'm, I'm really glad that you were able to take the time and, and, discuss it with me and and help me think through some of it as well um and and i'm sure that uh for people who are listening to this hopefully you know a bunch of you are are interested in, in reading it as well because it's um it's it's making me me think quite a bit so well that's uh, that's uh that's all i ask <laughs> so i don't you, know, you don't have to agree with me um but 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 i do want to i do want to unsettle a lot of a lot of what has become settled uh, and, and make us rethink a lot of assumptions that we have about, about you know, the word rights, um, yeah. which, which carries a certain purchase. Uh, and that's part of the problem um, is, that it, is, that, is that it carries that for, for, for lots of different people and people are, are different from each other. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, as I said, it's, it's, it's really, really interesting. And, and just this conversation alone is definitely making me think a lot as well. Uh, and, and hopefully it's done that for our, our listeners as well. Uh, once again, for people who are listening, the book is called How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. Uh, and it's by Jamal Green. And um, thanks again for, for taking the time to, to uh, come on the podcast and, and have this discussion. It's been my pleasure. I've enjoyed the, the conversation. Thank you. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening as well. And we'll be back next week.